This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome to Almost Heretical. We're back, and this week we're going to be talking about a topic that many of you, since we started the show a year and a half ago, have emailed in and asked us to talk about. We even did a poll this week um, because we reached a new uh, goal on our Patreon support. Thank you to all of our patrons. So we're going to do a Patreon-inspired episode this week. We threw it to our $25 or more supporters, and they suggested topics. This topic was suggested, and then all of our patrons voted on those topics, and this topic won, hands down. And it's the topic of LGBTQ, Christianity, sexuality, all of this stuff. We're going to talk about this today. Um, and it's going to be a two-part episode because there's a lot to get to. We haven't We haven't been avoiding this topic. It's not like we're just trying to string along conservative uh, listeners to the show or anything like that. Tim's been studying this topic, and we've just kind of been waiting to get to this, but we haven't been avoiding it at all. So we will do more episodes on this in the future. This is kind of a, a two-part Patreon-inspired teaser, I guess. And it also is going to kind of summarize and wrap up our Heaven and Hell series and kind of um, merge with that a bit. So that's what we're doing. Tim, did I miss anything? Uh. Yeah, so I think it's kind of cool. Like Nate said, this is not something that we've been uh, pushing off like to keep from taking a stance, you know, or to, uh, as you'll see, like try to hold on to conservative support. Like that's not a thing. Uh, I've been putting a lot of time into crafting some of the most compelling arguments possible and to try to do a really good job uh, with this topic because of how important this is for so many people. Um, so with that said, what we're going to do is kind of fun timing uh, with patron poll with uh, actually where we kind of went with the the Heaven series and then even a, a listener question that came in a couple months ago. Uh, what we're going to do is tackle one uh, aspect on the whole discussion of sexuality and gender identity, uh, which is... I think is going to be pretty uh, interesting and exciting to get to. What we'll do is at some point in the future, we'll come back and fill out uh, the, the topic uh, on sexuality and, uh, and gender. Um, so this is going to be, like Nate said, kind of a teaser, but it's more like there's one topic and it's actually connects to uh, what we discussed uh, in sort of this big picture of, of where the biblical story is headed, this uh, kind of new heaven, new earth picture um, that I think is really important. So uh, I guess we're like starting it and then we'll push pause for a little bit and we'll come back later. Okay, so let's just do it. Let's just get into it, okay? Cool. It's a so the question you mentioned, we get a lot of questions on this topic, um, but this is one we got recently from Tanner Allison. Hi, Nate and Tim. Thanks so much for doing your podcast. It's been a really great tool for me to organize and meditate on what I think about God and the church and faith. I would sincerely be interested in hearing your thoughts on what an affirming LGBTQ eschatology looks like. I've heard and read lots on the various clobber passages, and I think I have an affirming viewpoint, but one that has niggled at me is what new creation looks like. Can affirming Christians believe in a new creation in which God restores creation to God's original design? I think Reformed theology would say that gender identity issues all arise from the fall and will, therefore, be changed or erased in something like what C.S. Lewis called heaven working backward. That sounds pretty ugly to me. Because of the circumstances of someone's birth, they get to have their personalities lobotomized if they want to be with God. But I've also heard the idea that gender won't be part of the new creation. I guess it's a little better to say that everyone gets a lobotomy rather to single out a particular group for no reason, but I don't really buy into this one either. This idea would also have implications for the whole gender roles slash complementarianism thing. Perhaps that view of God's original design is wrong, and an affirming view would say that God's design was to allow evolution to create, and the products of those evolutionary creations are not necessarily products of a fall at all. In that case, is there even a new creation at all for God to restore us to? Anyway, sorry for rambling. I would love to know what you think. Thanks for the question, Tanner. Yeah, I was so excited uh, when I saw this question come in uh, because this was in the chain of thinking or the, the stream of thought uh, that I have found really, really important, which is asking 
questions related to some of the most uh, common uh, arguments, especially for the, the traditional view of marriage as a heterosexual divine ideal, um, that it's basically heterosexual marriage is rooted in creation, and it's this uh, this ideal that God has ordained. And that now has been, I think, the most common argument against uh, affirming LGBTQ people. So part of why I was excited to get the question is, is actually some of the same reason that I wanted to walk us through some of the heaven stuff. And I always love, Nate, uh, you know, I'm just... Uh, I like Bible nerd stuff, and so I go down rabbit holes because the rabbit hole is fun. And sometimes you track with me, and other times you're like, "What? Yes, you know, what does this really matter?" Right. Uh, and I've just seen over and over again that it always matters. It may take a while to see the ramifications. It may take a while to see the ethical uh, fruit, uh, one way or the other. Um, but it always ends up being impactful when we're learning to rethink uh, the scriptures. And this, actually, uh, I actually think the way we think about creation and heaven, one of the most important ethical ramifications in, in our generation is that that totally frames how we think about sexuality and gender and essentially natural theology. Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about in about basically two episodes. So I think it's going to answer Tanner's question and then uh, much more. Uh, so let's just jump in with that. So what part of this question, I, uh, I see the question and there are words that stick out of words that I've heard forever and ever and ever. For instance, like restoring creation to God's original design. Or I just threw out uh, the word like a divine ideal. Uh, in your experience, Nate, kind of how... How have you seen or heard or even yourself uh, perpetuated um, the kind of role that creation plays in uh, kind of setting up some sort of ideal for, uh, for sexuality? Well, I guess not even just sexuality, but I always believed and I guess taught that the state in the garden, everything was perfect, right? So they... There was perfection, and then it falls from perfection down to the lowest state, and then we're like trying to climb back to perfection, and ultimately the church is doing that, but then God's going to finally do that at the end, and we, we'll be back to perfection. So it's kind of this like, I'm, I'm making a, <laughs> like a, uh, what is that? Like a V, basically. Like he goes down and then back to perfection kind of thing. And then I, I remember one time Tim Mackey saying that the, the word perfection or the word perfect word perfect that's an old word processor the, the word isn't actually in those first few chapter, chapters of genesis there to describe that original state and that really got me thinking of like um debunking that whole like oh so it's not like this perfect place that we just need to get back to and because i think that does change your posture are you trying to get back to something or are you trying to move forward um so yeah so not trying to dodge the question i, I think with with sexuality, it seems like a lot of the verses in the Bible that have been used over the course of the last 50 years or something started to lose a lot of their power. Um, I know like people like Matthew Vines um, just kind of showing that that's not really what a lot of these verses were talking about. Um, and so it seemed like there was this like backtracking to all the way back to Genesis. It's like, okay, fine. If, if all those verses can't really be used and they're kind of conceding that those verses can't really be used, um, then we'll just come back to page one. It's a man and a woman. That's that was the original design. So that's doesn't really matter if we can if these other verses that we have been using don't really work. We're just going to come back to this original design thing. So that's sort of how I've used it in the past. I think subconsciously and how I've heard that used um, is this. It's not like it, it's not explicit there saying this is how it's supposed to look, but because that was the design on page one, unless something comes along and changes that design, then we'll just roll with that, right? So that's sort of what I've heard and, and done with Genesis, I think. Yeah, totally. There's a scholar that uh, I'm going to reference an article uh, a lot in the second episode here. Uh, her name's Megan Warner, 
And uh, I think she summarized it pretty well, that basically uh, the early days of this uh, war that's been raging for the last uh, many decades uh, started basically with, like Tana referenced, the clobber passages. You know, so it'd be like, well, Leviticus condemns homosexuality. And it was pretty easy for people to be like, but you don't follow any of the other Levitical laws. And what was the context of those laws? You know what I mean? And yeah. and so that one got kind of uh, done away with, rightfully so. And uh, then obviously it goes to, uh, for well, then too you have Sodom and Gomorrah and people trying to use that as case study. And then it doesn't take very long until people read Ezekiel and start doing better Bible study to realize that's, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah was gang rape and that's not the context. Like you're taking that all out of whack, like uh, slow down. Um, so that one sort of gets uh, taken off the table. Right. And then it went to Paul uh, and you have some seemingly very clear uh, condemnations in Paul's language uh, or in Paul's letters, uh, pretty clear language uh, prohibiting uh, homosexual practice. And uh, so those get used as uh, the clobber passages. But then uh, people like Matthew Vines and, and many, many others have just said, well, let's think more critically of like what was the, the form of the homosexuality that Paul would have had in his head or was referencing it. And in what ways is that uh, at all similar, or is it uh, completely different than when we're talking monogamous uh, homosexual marriage, right? So then I wouldn't say that argument's been done away with, but it at least has been, uh, there's a strong counterpoint uh, to to rethink Paul's uh, condemnations. So what Megan Warner's point was, and I think it's a, it was a good summary is, is what I've seen as well, is that there's been a second wave of argumentation in support of the traditional view uh, up and against those that uh, want the church to adapt. Uh, And that has been to root sexuality and gender complementarity and a definition of marriage to see that as rooted in Genesis 1 and 2, to see that as rooted in creation, and then to call creation or (laughs) essentially to call Genesis 1 and 2 and the theological idea of this, you know, world before a fall, to call that a divine ideal that has essentially an ethical restriction on everything that happens beyond that. So what I've seen again and again, and I think I spent a lot of years assu- just assuming this is what the texts were doing, and uh, today we'll poke some holes in that, but it was this idea of if if God created a world in a particular way, then we can't actively choose to live in a way that goes apart from from that natural ordering, uh, that divine ideal. And so you get a lot of the language, uh, even in churches where people have, have at least learned to be more sensitive and kind to LGBTQ people, they'll use language like it's just not it's just not loving uh to let them go down that road because it's not the best that god has for them right so it's this sense that heterosexual marriage is the the divine ideal it's the best possible thing so to choose anything different uh is to sin in a sense of like that's not that's not uh what the world was created for. And and then this is where we'll connect to heaven. The idea is that heaven is just getting back to Genesis one and two. It's just a return to that ideal. And so if heaven is a return to what we what we lost, then there's no space for thinking about a new creation uh, in which <laughs> there are non-binary gendered people and uh, and not a simple uh, heterosexual sexual uh, ethic. Uh, so that's why I got excited about Tanner's question because I think when we start thinking about heaven, heaven and when we start thinking about heaven and creation and the way they interact, it's going to throw that whole thing out of whack. So Nate, so okay, here, we're talking about this idea that uh, creation's been posited as this kind of restriction. Uh, you know, this is there's a way that God made things. 
and then heaven is a return to that way. And so there's no room for anything outside of those uh, boundaries. But if you think back on our heaven conversations, uh, you remember I was, I was making a, a bit of a big deal, and this is one reason why. I was making a big deal about uh, how heaven was essentially, or this, this revolution, this new, new heaven, new creation, uh, how this was a two-part thing, uh, where there's one, you know, so sort of what the book of Revelation was giving imagery to is the transition, right, from uh, essentially a, a world state in which the evil empires like Rome or America or whatever are in charge, right, to a state where the kingdom of God has gained power. And so you get the language of like, until all things are, are put under Christ's feet. So until there's this transition, from Christ being the, the powerless <laughs> victim to, uh, to Christ being in power. But then that is all just serving the ends of getting to phase two, which is where the, the imagery here is that Jesus and Jesus's family or, or kingdom then start using that power to heal the world, right? So what I was pointing out is it's dynamic. It's not just like a light switch is flipped and we go from bad world to good world. The idea is there's a reversal of power in which really wonderful people are put in charge, but then the main imagery of the new heaven and new earth is we watch the that new world go to work. Remember that? I hey Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was, because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) I think I see what you're saying. And I'm playing this out here a little bit, but wouldn't someone from, wouldn't, to play devil's advocate, wouldn't they say, yeah, but if it was in a good state and then it had to get bad, then we're not, try- we're not saying that uh, we don't need to change things about the world. We're just saying the things we need to change are returning to when it was good. You know what I mean? Right. Yes, we all agree, like, take the bad state that things are in and have a revolution, right? Or maybe, maybe everyone doesn't agree with that, but, like, let's have a revolution. The question is, what is... What are we, what does that revolution uh, end with? Does it end with the state of the garden? Obviously much more complex than that, but like the state of the garden where the things, the, the way the structures of the world at the time, the order and all that kind of stuff is, uh, is ruling and that's what, how we set up the world or is it something else? So I don't know. I'm just trying to play a little devil's advocate and push back. No, I think that's good. And I think, so that idea is that, the, like you just said, the state, right? That's where the word static comes from. We're returning to one state. Uh, we're, we're hoping for a revolution to return to the static imagery of this peaceful garden with God. And then that's where you get, remember we talked about just the sheer boredom that came with <laughs> the heaven imagery, right? Then we're just going to kind of sit around and sing songs. Um, there was no purpose, really, other than the idea was like we would just worship and we'd be super happy to be with God and worship. Um, but a lot of that is written in. Our sense of heaven had little purpose to it. Uh, yet all throughout Paul's language, you see, uh, or, or all of Jesus' parables, Heaven is depicted as like receiving a city to govern, right? Or you're given a job to do. Um, it's even the, the language of a kingdom, right? A government <laughs> is like it's to 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 rule, to uh, to move forward through history and to uh, to work basically. So 
Some of that is coming from a reading of Genesis 1 and 2 as a perfect static state that Adam and Eve were just supposed to hold on to, right? They were just supposed to like not blow this thing and preserve it. Uh, and then the whole world was just going to stay as is. Maybe more, more babies and people would show up. But the idea is it was just supposed to stay as is. So when we get to heaven, then the whole project is just make sure we keep it as is, right? But I think that picture is, is rooted in just a poor reading of Genesis 1 and 2. So even, even think about like the, the baseline imagery, uh, you get kind of two different parts of this in Genesis 1 and then in Genesis 2. The basic imagery is you've got a, a garden, right? And the job given to the human beings is to go rule over and take care of that garden. It's, it's basic agricultural imagery of what was actually there is a kind of wild land that needed to be cultivated. So the point was not to just sit around and enjoy the garden. That's not the, the basic imagery. It's not like the picture is not of a, um, you know, like a manicured English garden <laughs> and they're just supposed to sit and drink tea and enjoy themselves. It's more like uh, it's, it's a metaphor for the promised land, which is basically a really wild uncultivated land that has a lot of potential and humans were put there to go harness that potential and make something new of it. Uh, some people have used the language too of it's uh, of understanding the Genesis one and two story as Adam and Eve being dropped into a battlefield, uh, this kind of cosmic war zone. And some of that's just coming from a basic reading of like, if this was a static state, where everything was perfect and they just needed to not blow it. Like, how is there this enemy figure serpent uh, that shows up um, and is allowed to ruin things? Most, most, or not most, many scholars point out, and if you go back to our topics on uh, the weird Genesis stuff, uh, the basic idea was there's this new space created where beings already existed, this plethora of divine beings existed with Yahweh. That's the, the main cosmological belief. And then Yahweh creates a new world and new beings to rule that world. But, but life and, and existence was happening before the creation story that we are getting in Genesis 1 and 2. So in many ways, Genesis 1 and 2 is presenting a beginning. It's the origin of humanity, uh, but it's a start. It's not presenting uh, the beginning of all existence, and it's, it's not saying it was made perfect and they were just supposed to hang out. It's presenting it as this is how things got going, and then it actually tells us what they got going for, right? So the, I think the most important piece of all of this is the job given to the humans was to be the image of God which we talked about, that's just royal language. That meant their job was to rule. And so you get that language. They're told to rule over the earth. And I made the case that the main story being told here is this kind of jealous battle for who's going to get to rule, whether it's the humans or the divine beings. Uh, but the point is, creation is actually presented as the, the beginning or the creation of potentiality. And the humans, represented in this Adam and Eve uh, picture, are presented as being given and then tasked with moving forward with that potentiality in good and beautiful ways. They're supposed to do something with it, and they're actually supposed to help that created world progress to something new that doesn't exist. Does that make sense? Right. Yes, and I think I see what you're saying. Um, I, I, I still that that one thing is still like sitting there of like yes, but couldn't you say that the order, uh, like a complementarian would say, like it was still man first and then woman, like, and then go do all that stuff that you're talking about, and then go rule. You know what I'm saying? Like you could still maybe say that. Maybe that was even before. Like then you go on this like journey to then make the this tame this land and then make this whole world 
into something and you know all this potential bring the potential out of the land but maybe these like orders were still before that you know does that make sense at all yes and i think it's important because i i see where you're going with this and so that's why i'm trying to really you know push back as much as i can here because i think i don't want to just glaze over this too fast right you can make that argument and as many many people do First of all, side note, the whole complementarian idea that man was created before a woman and that means something, all the animals were created before the man, so just get over that one. Okay. That's why the lion <laughs> is really... Okay, sorry. Yeah, or or man should be serving plants or something. Uh, you can make that argument, and many people will, but what I realize is that many of us have been led to assume that what you see in Genesis 1 and 2, just by the nature of its being there, that means this is a snapshot of, of A, what is the ultimate ideal, right? It's the best possible world. And therefore, B, that, is, that means that's the world that we have to, to live into, and I don't think that's how the actual text is presenting itself to us. There's some elements of, there's definitely a lot of ordering and uh, patterning and pairing of, uh, you know, night and day. And, and there's some theological sense trying to be presented here. But I don't think the text ever tells us, either in Genesis 1 and 2, or then the re- how the rest of the scriptures interpret Genesis 1 and 2. That simply by God creating this world and creating humans to be in this world, that the things we see described in Genesis 1 and 2 are like a mandate, right? A big one we're going to get into is Genesis 2.24. That'll be the next episode uh, on this line. about <laughs> That's why men leave their families uh, and cling to uh, a woman. And... I've heard over and over and over again that line treated and, and it's been described as a divine mandate for marriage. But where are we seeing that as a, a mandate basically means a, a command or a restriction on behavior, right? Like this is what you're mandated to do and, and not that. My point here is that that's all being read into the text. So you can't just point at something in Genesis 1 and 2. For instance, there was a woman and a man, and they were in a heterosexual relationship. You can't just point at that and say, see, it's in Genesis 1 and 2. It was at the beginning. Therefore, that's what God wants for all human beings. Or therefore, that's an ethical boundary that to go away from that norm would be to go against God's design for humans. You can, you can say that you believe that, but it's not fair to say that Genesis 1 and 2 is making that claim itself. It's telling a story, and I think the, the most plain reading, it's a difficult reading, these texts are super complex and tricky, but the most plain reading is to see this as, as setting up a beginning, and, and I know this is going to kind of sound scary to people, but I, I think it's easy to see if you sit with this stuff for long enough, was to, to give humanity the ethical autonomy and power to move forward and evolve through history, progressing forward to make a better world than the one God had placed them into. So you you mentioned like rethinking this idea of perfection, right? Nowhere are we told that the world Adam and Eve stepped into was so perfect that we just wanted to conserve it, right? Uh, I mentioned in a, a few months ago, an episode, that just the, the default ideology of wanting to conserve past culture or past ethics, um, that default way of thinking that the past is better and we need to avoid changing in the future, I know this sounds sharp or whatever, it's utterly at odds with the basic Christian way of seeing the world. And, he, and it starts on page one of the Bible. Would a good example of this be that they were told to tend the garden? The garden isn't the garden wasn't, like you said, in this perfect state. They were they were given a job, 
you, the only reason you need a job is because something needs fixing or needs changing or needs making better or needs, you know, something like that. Also, I, I thought of this too. <laughs> this, this is kind of a weird off the wall one, but like, don't like nudists use the whole like, they, and they didn't have clothes on. So that's the desired state for humanity is to, is to be uh, humans that don't wear clothes, right? Like you, you, you'd have to then say that as well. If you want to say that it has to be this male female monogamous relationship. And we know that because that's what we see. That's what it was in Genesis one. Like you'd have to take then every single thing from Genesis one and say, that is the desire we as a people that believes in, in uh, this book would, we need to get back to all these things and we need to start doing that right now. Totally. There are so many side sidebar notes that could be had in this conversation. I don't know to res- whether I should restrain myself or not, but so that that's a good example because uh, it's simply presented as that's how God created them. That's how he put them there, right? Naked. So that's before any fall, right? It's pre-fall if you, if you want to use that language. So that's clearly the expressing some ideal, right? If, you're, if this is the way that you're reading this text. Uh, and then you can weasel and do different things with that. Um, but one that's actually expressly stated as God's restrictions on how the man and woman were supposed to behave was they were supposed to be vegetarians. That's actually placed there as one of the only rules. <laughs> they're told that they're supposed to eat the plants. The plants were created for them and the animals to eat, and they're not supposed to eat the animals. So why you have thousands of American Christians eating beef and claiming that heterosexual marriage is a divine ideal that every human being has to uphold to, otherwise they're sinful. <laughs> there's a there's a huge inconsistency there. Sidebar, I don't want to get down that road. Because um, I don't think <laughs> we should be reading any of these pieces uh, that way. So, ag- again, if we back up, try to connect this. Um, I know I, I mention this verse all the time, and it... <laughs> It probably seems like I'm using it for too much. I think the strange little line from Paul to the Corinthians that don't they know they're going to judge angels, which essentially means don't don't you know you're going to actually rule over the divine beings and enact governance. Uh, I know that's just a it it's a blip in Paul's thought. And most of us never knew what to do with that passage or what the heck Paul's talking about. Uh, if you're listening to this and you don't know, still, go back and listen to the early episodes of the podcast. Uh, Paul's worldview was that Jesus and, and the government, that's what a, the kingdom of God is, is the, the government of God, was those who would be such beautiful, loving rulers that they were going to be handed rule not only over earth, but over the, the heavenly realm as well. But what does that mean? Like, and, and Paul brings us up in, in the context of people suing each other. So I know this is going to sound strange or scary or more than almost heretical. Uh, it still, even to me, feels uh, new. But I, th- I think it's pretty clear and logical that what it means for humans to be made to rule, to be royal images who are given governance of the world, what it means for Christ's followers to be ambassadors of God in the world, who will sit with him and reign in Christ's government, what it means for those same people to prepare to rule over divine beings. What that means is that the baseline point is that we are supposed to be the people, the kind of people, who enact ethical autonomy to determine what is good and right and true and what is wrong and unjust in the world and to see those decisions through. Now, I know we've been, so many of us have been so ingrained with this idea that humans only do what's right in their own eyes, right? And that really all we're supposed to do is forget our own moral consciences and learn God's rules for how we're supposed to live and uh, obey those rules and present those rules. That just isn't the 
idea behind the entire scriptures. Uh, I think that's the instinct, that sense that we, and especially if you've come from the Reformed crowd that, that makes a really big deal out of what I would call very strange and toxic ideas of total depravity and original sin, where we can't even trust any bit of our own moral conscience, right? Like, if you're walking down the street and you see something, like, you can't even really know for sure whether that's right or wrong, what you're seeing. You just have to know what God thinks about it, right? Where you're trained that literally you can't make ethical choices for yourself. You have to learn God's ethical choices and then just just trust those choices. Uh, I know this sounds especially foreign. I made a point a year ago or so on the podcast to say the entire Hebrew Bible is written to an audience assuming that that audience has the capacity, intellectual capacity and moral capacity to know right from wrong, <laughs> that the Hebrew Bible as a, as a collection of texts doesn't make sense if it's written to a group of people that had that view of <laughs> total depravity, right? It's written, to, uh, it's written from a context and from a belief that actually its readers were highly capable people. Well, because otherwise you run into problems all the time. The second the Bible is done— and you get, you know, one year later, something comes up, some scientific discovery, some like some something changes in what they knew during the Bible times when that was being written. Suddenly, the whole book would be ineffective. Then it can't, or you, or you start on this path, which I think is what a lot of people have been on, especially in the last few hundred years with the Reformed tradition of trying to interpret the Bible as best you can for things that it wasn't speaking directly to, right? Because it couldn't have been talking about space and like, or we're going to, we're going to discover this when we go to Mars and now there's people living on Mars and people living on the moons of Jupiter. And like, we're going to discover this over the next few hundred years um, that it doesn't speak to that. And so it's going to come down to, hopefully we're the type of people that can make decisions about, and we have, we have, we really, we have done this. I, I say this on the show all the time with like topic of slavery or, uh, or, or whatever, like we've done this before where we have to use our ethics, um, morals to determine what is actually good, right? Beautiful. Um, and sometimes that that's meant going against what the Bible actually said on something. Anyways, that's, uh, <laughs> right. I'm getting off there, but. Yeah, and it's a slightly different point, um, but it's related, right? So, again, like, how can we conceptualize that God entrusted us? I mean, think this is the basic part of page one of the Bible. Entrusted all of us, like your craziest neighbor and you, entrusted us to rule the world and think that God thinks we don't have the capacity to make a single ethical choice for ourselves, <laughs> Right? Paul's language saying, don't you know you'll judge angels, is saying, don't you know it is your job to make even the highest possible ethical choice with the most <laughs> severe bearing, right? His, that's his entire point. If you're being entrusted to rule over an entire realm of divine beings, don't you think you should be better at enacting ethical, essentially, the, the context, people suing each other in the church, don't you think you should be better at having the wisdom to navigate this situation well, right? So this propensity of ours to think that we can't know anything, can't trust our own moral intuition. Why, why do we get there? Like, how do we get there? Why do we want that? Why do we want to be, why does that seem like a safer spot to be, this whole, like, you can't trust anything. It's just what the Bible said, because that's God's rules. Why, why do we do that? It's, that? it's that last word, rules, right? I think I'll answer your question in a sec, but the first part is just to point out, if that's at all how you're thinking, then you need rules. You need divinely given <laughs> regulations, right? So that leads to our propensity to see rules everywhere where they aren't rules, right? So why do we Christians read the examples, the <laughs> several hundred plus examples of laws that are a part of the mosaic of the Hebrew Bible? Why do we read those in our immediate intuition is those are laws given that we or those are rules given to us and we need to follow them. Right? Nowhere in the Bible does it even say that the law is something that the readers of the Bible are supposed to be following. But that's our default reaction, right? Why do we look to Paul 
and make rules out of Paul writing letters to his friends, right? Like we do that because that that's, has to happen, right? And so we've talked about this a lot. Then the Bible itself has to be used for something it was, it was never intended to be used for, which is a rule book, right? Or at least a book that contains the rules that, that we need. And I think one piece of that, at least, is that that gets us off the hook for being wise human beings. Um, because if you can point to you're following a religious uh, system that has given you your ethical uh, rules and we've got the perfect system, we just have to go out to the world and, and get them to adhere to our system. Uh, it means that you don't have to be a wise person. You don't have to be a, a mature moral agent in the world. You just have to have the re- right religious doctrines. I have found, I, I used to think very similarly, uh, I have found that that just doesn't work <laughs> in practice, and uh, then have since found that, that that would just be so far from how the biblical authors think about things. Hmm. Uh, I think many people have actually uh, pointed this out recently. Uh, I think I keep hearing this on podcasts in different places, but the strange story of uh, when Solomon is king and the two women are fighting over you know whose child it is, and they come up to him and he does the makes a strange proclamation strange and probably incredibly uh, careless and toxic <laughs> judgment of uh, essentially threatening to kill the baby so then it reveals you know which woman reacts more maternally, whatever. The reason that story is there is to present what a king was supposed to be doing as a ruler. Kings didn't have rules. The Bible Project has recently pointed this out. Like there was no statutory legal system because you had no government that could regulate a legal system. The point was to be wise, which meant that the point of being a king was to be able to make your own ethical decisions, right? And navigate your own ethical scenarios to take the circumstances that are approaching you, two women arguing over whose baby is really theirs, and make up for yourself the best response to those circumstances. Hmm. And Paul's saying that that is true of the entire church. Genesis 1 is saying that is true of every human being on the planet, right? The point is we were all kings and queens. That's the, that's the original anthropological statement of Genesis 1 and 2. It's one of the best statements that the Bible as a whole has ever made, is that every human being is royal, a royal image bearer of God. That was only said of, of kings, that they were the, the Nebuchadnezzars and Caesars of the world were the images of God. But according to Genesis 1 and 2, we all are. And what that means is we were always supposed to develop the capacity, the character, the maturity, the wisdom Hmm. to do that well, right? And so my point here, as this connects to heaven, I think oftentimes we have depicted heaven, like, like we talked about, as a return to a state in which we still don't enact any moral autonomy, Right, we basically sit around yeah. in submission. To, we don't have to at that point, right? Like it's yeah, yeah. because because a uh, we aren't the point in that in that schema. Just God's the point, and we're all supposed to get out of the way, right? This is not how Paul thinks of it. Paul thinks we're going to have cities to rule, nations to govern, like jobs to do. We're going to have strange beings to to judge. Um, the point is that we are to hoping for the the biblical to use that word hope through and through is that the thing that would get returned to is the Eden starting point. And actually, to quote N.T. right here, uh, he says this a lot. the The point of getting back to the starting point is so that we could get busy getting the job done or something like that. Um, or get to work. Like, that's the point. The point is not to sit around and retire. <laughs> so uh, there's a, a sh- consistent theme. I think it's not wrong to say that the main storyline of the Bible is that the pro- the problem of the fall is not perfection to imperfection. It's that the beginning was a partnership where humans partnered with God in relationship and in proximity, in contact with God to rule over the world. Before they even really got going anywhere, all they did was name some animals. (laughs) Before they did much else, that project got thrown off. It's not that the world got destroyed so much as the project got thrown off. 
So the entire Torah is about how is humanity going to come back into partnership with God. The entire idea of Israel as a people was about how humans were going to work with God again. The entire idea of being a disciple of Jesus is about getting back to partnering with God to go to the original project. That is why the Holy Spirit comes to empower people. So the whole idea of heaven is the beginning of a job. And my point here is that that job is not to sit around and make sure that no one ruins things. That job is to progress forward through history. Mm. So that's where I think this this heaven piece is, is key. It's to to progress forward through history to make worlds that don't exist before and then adapt and flex and bend, uh, not not in the way that, say, the book of Judges talks about the, the kings doing what's right in their own eyes, being evil, awful, unjust rulers, right? It's not that to say we're just going to do whatever we want. Uh, the Bible doesn't believe that there are no morals or there are no ethics, but my point is the Bible believes that we have the capacity to become wonderful moral agents in the world, and then we will creatively move forward to make a world that doesn't currently exist. And so what we're seeing when we see Genesis 1 and 2 is not a snapshot of what we're trying to get back to. It's a snapshot of the beginning of what heaven would be. And what heaven is working toward, we don't actually know. We haven't seen it. We aren't given a picture of that. So the language in Revelation of humans being with God in this new garden space, which is taken from Genesis 1 and 2, it's saying that we're getting back to the beginning so that we can start what Adam and Eve never got very far starting. Throw you, let me throw you a verse, uh, Romans 1, where a lot of people go talking about, um, and, and this is also used in the sexuality, gender um, debates as well, but when Paul starts talking about like all the people and God giving them over to their sinful desires, um, all know they, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Um, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And then it talks about how he gave them over to their shameful lusts. Women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Um, basically, he gave them over to all these things. So what you're saying is that the problem here isn't that they got away from God's rules. It's that they became unwise in their in their own minds, and they started doing things that weren't wise. Is, or I'm confused. Yeah, weren't wise, or weren't just, or weren't good, or whatever. So you know, if if we do a, a sidebar on this whole like total depravity thing, to say that that Paul doesn't think we're all worthless scum that have no capacity for uh, for living good lives or knowing right from wrong, doesn't mean that Paul thinks everybody's great. <laughs> you know, Like, dudes beat him up and tried to kill him just for coming into town one time. Like, he doesn't think everybody's great. Uh, now, in terms of what Paul thinks about homosexuality in Romans 1 and how that relates to the not-greatness of human beings, uh, for now, I'm just going to silo that into the, the realm of, like, when Paul's thinking of homosexual practice, what is he thinking of? Is it rape? Is it prostitution? Is it cultic? That's all second conversation. We can have that. Uh, but I think the, the main point uh, here is that uh, he's not saying, for instance, uh, these people don't have all the laws that you have in <laughs> your Hebrew Bible, and they didn't follow all those laws to a T, and that's why they're bad. Hmm. <laughs> right? Uh the laws given at different times, or for instance, say when Abraham is given commands and he's supposed to uh, pass a test by following those commands, those are chapters in a story. The overarching story is like, what kind of people do we have here? Uh, are they people who listen to God? That's a part of it, right? But it's not, these are rules given and everybody's supposed to, for instance, go kill their son on a, on a mountaintop right? Uh, like Abraham was told to do. These are examples and chapters in a story, uh, but the story is much bigger than 
following rules. The story is about character, integrity, capacity to, to rule. So the problem is there in verse 30 of Romans 1, where it's they are gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding. It's like no love, no mercy. Like The problem is they're not the type of people that can govern and rule because they're making terrible decisions, not because they're not following the rule book that was originally set out, but because they're just not the kind of people and maybe not wanting to be the kind of people that will rule well. Is that sort of what I hear you saying? Uh, yeah, sure. And again, remember, so I just said that the, I think the main storyline of the Bible Paul was reading uh, was about humanity was supposed to partner with God to be great humans in order to lead the world in, in wonderful, beautiful ways of peace and prosperity, right? If, if you don't understand the, the picture of then what the Genesis 3 through 11 depiction of what went wrong is, is saying— what Paul's saying here is every Jew around him would have thought this way. God gave up everybody else in the world and chose to only be in partnership with Abraham and then Abraham's family, the people of Israel. So that's what Paul is referencing is this idea that most of human history fell out of this entire uh, project of partnering with God, to be in relationship with God, to rule the world in wonderful ways. And then Paul believes they were ruled over by these other divine beings, uh, which I point this out all the time. I don't think most of us actually believe that, but Paul did. Uh, and that's what he is he is referencing. And so, uh, again, we can silo off the conversation of, and there are some important ones, um, of why in Paul's mind is homosexual practice listed as one of the things that indicates waywardness, right? Or indicates, uh, right, right. you know, moral uh, corruption or whatever. That's um, an important consideration if you're just trying to think, as I think, is, is more like, how would Paul react in 2019? <laughs> now that we have the science that we have, now that we know uh, what we know, and I should say it, like, we know some percentage, no one knows the exact number, some percentage ranging from 3 to 8% or so, some studies range in, in that uh, area, would self-identify as not heterosexual, right? We know, we know that now. Uh, we know that it is not a choice or that that doesn't just happen to people because of some event that happened in their life, but people know oftentimes from the time they're three years old. Uh, that they do not fit the so-called natural uh, heterosexual norm, and that another percentage, not quite as large, but significant, a sizable percentage, some studies would say 0.3%, some even higher, uh, do not fit the binary norms of male or female. We know that now. <laughs> if you don't know that, that, that has been proven. This is science. This is not uh, a whole bunch of weird people um, making a decision to live some like alternative lifestyle. And so the question, one question uh, is, is I think the most important one is if Jesus were here today, what would Jesus say, right? Or if Paul were writing letters to your church today, when this is the, the topic of the day, what, what would Paul say? And while we're talking about this idea of a, of a created ideal, and a move towards a, a new and more perfect world. What's been done for, for centuries is typically called natural theology uh, on the topic of homosexuality, but it's been done in, in a variety of topics, is to say whatever God created is natural. However God designed things, that is what is natural. That is according to God's design, right? It's God's plan for the world. And we need to confine our lives to within that natural plan. That's part of, I think, what is inherent in this uh, kind of second phase, like I said, of once the clobber passages sort of lost their power, is to go back and say, well, homosexuality just isn't part of God's design plan. But, but here's the scientific revolution that, Nate, you and I have lived through, is we now know that what is natural is that a sizable percentage of human beings, millions of people, are born to not fit 
either the male or female gender binary or the heterosexual norm. That is part of what is natural. <laughs> that doesn't mean that most people aren't heterosexual or most people uh, don't easily identify uh, with the physical anatomy and, uh, and sex that they were born with. Uh, but part of what we have to understand is, is natural <laughs> now that we know this. Paul didn't know that, <laughs> right? Uh, Paul and no one he was writing to uh, knew that. Uh, our grandparents didn't know that, right? They maybe could have intuited it if they, if they tried hard or something, but we now know that and we have to adapt. Mm -hmm. And so my point here is that, that what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is not telling us necessarily that that is all that is allowed for in God's plan for the world. Now we have made another scientific discovery, right? Paul thought that the world was flat. Paul thought that the Mediterranean world was all that existed and Ireland and the Americas were nowhere out there, <laughs> right? Paul thought that the world was the center of the universe and the sun bent around it. The church has been totally fine saying, that's fine. <laughs> Paul, Paul's wrong. Paul thought Jesus was going to come back in a few decades. He didn't. That's fine. We can move forward. We can adapt with that. Uh, Paul thought there were only 70 nations on the planet. Turns out, like, he didn't know about some continents. That's fine. Like, we can move forward with that. We can adapt. And you've pointed out, Nate, all the time that, like, the church has never, like, gone away, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, it's always managed to adapt. Sadly, the church is usually one of the, the, last, the last groups on the adapt. planet yep. to adapt to, to science, and not just science, but the ethics uh, that we're learning alongside that science. So I guess all that to say to wrap this conversation up and then kind of move into phase two, um, we now know that that the heterosexual and male-female binary norms are not all that is included in what God has created in human beings, right? The author of Genesis 1 and 2 didn't know that. But also, the authors of all of the texts in the biblical canon and the redactors who put the whole thing together uh, are not trying to get us to think about Genesis 1 and 2 as some sort of limitation on what humanity can be. They're actually saying, whatever you see there is supposed to be paling in comparison to what that potential will lead towards, right? right. So the idea, the goal of being with God is not to sit around and preserve that relationship. It's to make something new out of it and to know that God has empowered and entrusted you to make decisions, good decisions on on ethics, right? To decide what is right and wrong. Yeah, like we're, we're supposed to be the type of people that can then take this issue, and that's what we're doing on this show. And we're supposed to be able to take this issue and all the podcasts out there that are doing the same thing and all the books that are being written, take this issue and make good, loving, beautiful decisions around this based on what we now know while being the type of people that we're supposed to become, um, which is loving, merciful, you know, just, and, and, and make good decisions with that. So that's, am I hearing that right? Yeah. So I think to circle back to Tanner's question, remember he asked, can affirming Christians believe in a new creation in which God restores creation to God's original design and talks about essentially implied in that idea, if what we're all hoping for is a restoration to God's original design, then by the logic of many people, that means there's no room for transgender people and there's no room for homosexual people. And my, my point is, that's nowhere in scripture is that's the point, right? When we return to life with God in a peaceful, <laughs> delightful place, that's what the word Eden means, the point is then to go out and make a new world far from the confines of the little garden in the Middle East, right? It is to go uh, to make something new. The idea that there's no possibility for transgendered people or just non-binary gendered people or queer LGBTQ people of, of any sort, the idea that there's no space for them in, in the new creation and where this whole thing is headed because where the whole thing is headed is going back to this uh, original design for the heterosexual norm that we have to conserve, that idea is not in the text. And that idea, the big picture idea of what we think we're all like headed towards, 
I think undermines that entire assumption um, and that entire argument to, to limit sexual ethics. We still have a lot of thinking, a lot of conversation to have, right? And how do we make sense of Paul's text and all these other things? Um, but this has been a big one, I think, in recent, uh, in recent arguments. And it's especially been rooted in Genesis 2.24, which we're going to talk about next time. All right. Should we say that's part one? Sure. All right. Part one. Done. Uh, we'll see you next time for part two on this topic. If you want to find out more about us or the show or anything like that, you can go to almostheretical.com. And we do. We have a Patreon page where we have a whole second podcast. We do conference calls once every month or two. And we'd love you to be a part of all that. You can find that all at patreon.com slash almostheretical. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Peace.